Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode George White and His Scandals. This is the first part of my conversation with Gary Flannery, who somehow, while pursuing his own spectacular career as a dancer, also found time to become the leading expert on the tumultuous life and career of George White, the fabled Broadway producer, director, choreographer, writer, songwriter, and dancer who rose to fame in vaudeville and is a featured performer in the Ziegfeld Follies. And then, between 1919 and 1939, he went on to produce 19 Broadway musicals, including 13 editions of his own spectacular and legendary review, The George White Scandals. It is Gary's firm conviction that George White is the most underrated and neglected genius in the history of the Broadway musical. And furthermore, he believes that if George White's full legacy and impact were acknowledged and recognized, it would equal or surpass that of Ziegfeld, Cohan, the Schubert brothers, and virtually every other great showman in Broadway history. Gary has certainly convinced me, and I suspect after you've heard him tell George White's amazing story, you will be persuaded as well. As his day job, Gary Flannery was one of Bob Fosse's favorite dancers, and he appeared in the Broadway productions of both Danson and Pippin. And you probably have seen him as one of the leading dancers in Fosse's film All That Jazz. He also toured the world dancing with Shirley MacLaine and was a featured dancer on many television variety shows. Today, he directs, choreographs, writes, teaches, and conducts masterclasses in all manner of Broadway dance and musical theater history. His research on George White is only one part of his Great American Review project, which includes lectures, books, documentaries, and revivals in various stages of production. Here we go. Gary Flannery, welcome to Broadway Nation. It's such a thrill to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David, for inviting me. This is terrific. Outside of talking to my wife all the time about George White, I don't get to talk about him very much, actually. So Let's start there. Who was George White and why should we know more about him? What about George White 
makes him significant in the history of Broadway? First of all, his real name was Israel White, W-E-I-T-Z. He was born in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, uh, 1890. He had an Orthodox Jewish father and an English mother whose name was Lena White, and the father's name was White. And so he was born Israel White. And he had quite a large family. They all lived in like a one-bedroom, you know, slum down on the east side. And he started dancing. Actually, I mean, he never went to school a day in his life. And so he learned how to read from selling newspapers in the streets. So he's a newsboy, like Irving Berlin. He's one of these newsboys from Newsies in real life. Absolutely. Yep. Except he wasn't doing, you know, tour on layers and stuff. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. And so he ended up doing some dancing in the city early on. He was fascinated with tap dancing and the blacks. Even at age eight and 10 years old, he's grabbing rides on the back of wagons and whatever going up to Harlem. So here's this young white Jewish boy, probably about two foot ten at this point, you know, going up to Harlem to work with these tap dance masters. And he's learning it, and he ends up finding or stealing or whatever, a a pair of tap shoes for himself, unbeknownst to his father, who condemned any kind of theater dancing or music, wouldn't even have it in the apartment. He ends up doing some little cabaret-type weird things in New York and learning how to dance and go on stage and things. And just as he's learning this at about 10, 11 years old, his father loses his garment worker's job, and they decide to move to Toronto, Canada, where they have some other relatives there. And so he is very upset and disappointed. And by this time, he had several nicknames, Jesse being one of them, J-E-S-S-I-E, and he went by that name quite a lot. And then they go into Toronto, and he has a miserable time up there, and he just hated it. He ends up finding a black tap dancer that's there that was just sort of traveling around the country trying to do various shows, and he becomes friends with him, and they team up and are dancing in the streets of Toronto. This tap dancer, like 19, 20 years old, six foot two black tap dancer, Charlie Sands, and this five foot tall, you know, 11 year old Jewish boy. And George White by this time has made himself a violin out of a cigar box, which is classic, and has a harmonica. So he's doing all of this music and everything besides putting his shoes on and tap dancing. But the other guy is really a hoofer and, you know, had performed in all kinds of minstrel shows and reviews and things. So here they are in the streets of Toronto and Charlie gets a job down in Detroit, okay, at a racetrack. He had been supplementing his salary by uh, working out with racehorses, cleaning the stalls and whatever. So George White, who's still at this point Jesse White's, goes with Charlie at 11 years old. He's leaving Canada, and they have a fake document made up for him that now he's 18 years old. So he takes the mother's name, George White. So he comes back into America as George White at 18 years old, and he's still only 11. Wow. Yeah. And so that's why there's always been confusion about what his name was, where he was born, and when he was born. 
being born in Israel even, not in Europe, being born and raised in Toronto, in Canada. So no, that's the real story. It's confusing that his father's name is Whites and his mother's name is White. So you think a lot of Jewish people just Americanized their name, but he actually had both options there. He had the option of, of the mother right there. So yeah. So he had no no qualms about it. But but picture again, you know, these two now in, in the streets of Detroit in 1901 performing God knows what. I mean, a song and dance and comedy out in the streets. And how old is Charlie? Charlie's like 1920. Okay, so he's a young guy too. One's a kid and one's a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, but Charlie had been around. He took most of the effort to make things happen. And so they're they're having a good old time in Detroit and and Charlie is working out out at Windsor Racetrack. And next thing you know, he drags George White out to the track one day and somehow George White ends up getting on a friggin' horse, you know, <laughs> one of these race horses and galloping away down the track. Well, the trainer sees this and decides that he's going to make George White, you know, a jockey. So it happens just like in the blink of an eye. They think he's 18 years old anyway, so he's legally ready to go. He's still 11. Right. But he's the perfect size for an 18-year-old to be a jockey because he's yeah. unusually short. And he's got all the balls of the world, you know, and has no fears of anything. And so here he is now on these racehorses. So he starts racing professionally and and took several second places <laughs> at 11, 12 years old. So again, they're having a grand old time and he's getting all this money and stuff that he's turning around and betting back at the track, you know, on horses. And so it was just hilarious. If you can imagine this young, young boy strapped to this beast. And, and at that point, I mean, these guys were brutal. Uh, there, there were no rules or regulations. But again, he did it. Then the next thing you know, Charlie decides he's gotten in a show and he's moving on. And so George White stays there for a little while longer, but then decides he's going to jump on a train and go back to New York. Now he's 12, coming back into New York City in 1902. On his own. So he comes in, he has no work, nothing, you know, there, and passes immediately this postal delivery office, and they're advertising for delivery boys. And so he's got papers again that he's 18, 19 now, or whatever. So he goes in and applies, and the guy, like, throws him out and says, you're, you're a kid, what are you talking about? So he starts screaming at the top of his lungs, you know, that bothered the guy so much that he finally gave him the job <laughs> and so he took on a night job down in the bowery which he knew at that point right. from earlier days delivering messages all night long into the bowery at five cents a message that he got and so if he had five or ten messages he made more than his father was making for the day or for the week so he starts this and he's doing very well now he still has his tap shoes and his harmonica, and he starts buskering in the streets of the Bowery in between his delivery, or as it turns out, during his delivery. <laughs> so now he's got this beautiful blue, you know, uniform, skin-tight, one-piece uniform with his blue hat, and he's delivering messages. So he's got a great costume, basically, to be a performer as well now. Exactly. You couldn't write this any better, you know, about this boy coming into all of this. And so one night he ends up at Piggy Donovan's place, 
which was the raunchiest, raucous saloon in, in all of New York City, in all the country, probably. And that's down on the Bowery? Yes. And so he's delivering a message to Piggy, a telegram. Meanwhile, this young black boy is tap dancing with a piano and all the people screaming and yelling. He's tap dancing inside. And George White is like, wow, look at this. And the next thing you know, he finishes and he rained on with a whole lot of pennies. They're throwing money at him. So he picks up his money and he's going out the door. And as he's going by, George White has now taken off his cap and put it out in the middle of the floor. He goes over the keyboardist and has him start some ragtime honky-tonk tune and starts tap dancing his brains out. And the people go completely crazy. So now at the end of his two minutes, they are throwing coins, not pennies, but nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars out onto the floor. And the black guy now comes and helps him put all this money into his cap and said, my God, man, I've never seen anything like this. Look at all this money you made. So they go outside. He counts the money. It's $18. In his first real sort of public performance, he makes $18. In 1902. 1902. So I just did the translation on this on Google. $18 in 1900 is worth $626 today. Wow. Cool. (laughs) That's very cool. So yeah, George does good. So he goes outside and he's picking up all the telegrams and he just tears them in half and throws them away. He's like, that's it. I'm my own man now. Never going to deliver another telegram. I'm just going to tap dance. He's going to work everywhere from the Pelham Cafe to to you name it. He became one of the head buskers of the whole area. Meanwhile, he's still going up to Harlem and working with tap dance masters up there all the time. So his talent and his abilities and technique are increasing dramatically as he's going along. And so now, at maybe 13, 14 years old, he's going uptown, and he runs into this six-foot-three, <laughs> big, brawny Irishman, Benny Ryan, is tap dancing and doing jig work out in the streets of Harlem. And George is just completely blown away. So they end up teaming up, and because Ryan was older and bigger, you know, at this point, weight is maybe five one. Or something. So they team up and they they start a duo called Ryan and White. How old is Benny Ryan? Benny Ryan is probably 25, 30-ish, quite a bit older. And they do all sorts of vaudeville deals here, there, and everywhere. They actually went into the Palace Theater. They were doing all kinds of circuits. So they become a successful vaudeville team. Correct. Stars, really. Yeah. To get to the palace, you have to be a star on some circuit or other. Yeah, well, that took a while, but they eventually ended up there. And then they are out at Coney Island one afternoon performing, and they're walking by these two Hungarian girls that are doing this little Hungarian folk dance out, you know, to make money. And they're watching them, and George was fascinated and just loved girls Anyway, so he goes up to them afterwards and and he says, listen, girls, you know, you're so cute and and you're really good dancers and stuff, but this is America. You can't do these Hungarian folk dances. It's just not, it's not going to get you anywhere. So why don't you team up with me and Benny and we'll create an act together. And you're so cute. You look like little dolls. Why don't we call you the Dolly Sisters? 
he names them. He finds them. He names them. He dates each one of them on and off, which, you know, totally pissed off Benny Ryan, and it eventually caused their split up. But George then also became brilliant at business and handling affairs. So now he has taken over their bookings of Ryan and White, and Dillingham hires this quartet to go into the Echo on Broadway. So now they have a legitimate Broadway contract, which was a quarter of what they were making in vaudeville. And all the vaudevillians faced that dilemma, that if they went legit, they weren't going to make nearly the money they were making in vaudeville. And so anyway, it was the Broadway debut of the Dolly Sisters and of George White in the Echo of 1911. And this is Charles Dillingham, one of the biggest Broadway producers of the era. Correct. And it was a pretty good act from all indications and reviews and stuff that I read about. And made the Dolly Sisters famous, literally almost overnight. And Ryan and White, because of their feud over these girls, they split up. And then that's when George White goes out on his own and ends up in the West and stuff. So the whole act breaks up, basically, over the jealousy between the guys. Yep. And then the Dolly sisters immediately are discovered by (laughs) Ziegfeld and put into the Ziegfeld show and overnight become silent movie stars as well. Right. And this is the hit song that the Dolly Sisters introduced in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1911. Don't go away. Gary and I will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. 
Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, George White comes back to New York in 1915 and gets into the Ziegfeld Follies. He is a dancer then, you know, with Ziegfeld's director and choreographer. He does pretty well in it and then goes into Ziegfeld's Miss 1917 as the lead principal dancer in Miss 1917, Drone Kern. And there he meets George Gershwin, who is current rehearsal pianist for the show. And then George White goes back into the Follies, I think in 1918 or something, and then has this knockdown, drag out battle with Ziegfeld over the fact that there should be more dancing in the show. And he wants more featured dance work in the show. So Ziegfeld fires him and has Ned Wayburn throw George White out the stage door, screaming all the while. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he said, I'll get you, you know, I'll be back. I'll get you, Ziegfeld. You're not that great kind of thing. And he didn't. He really didn't consider him very good at all at what he did. And he wasn't. I mean, Ziegfeld was the Donald Trump of that era. He controlled the press. He controlled the media. He controlled a lot of theater. But he was an idiot and a jerk. So George White is in the Ziegfeld Follies thinking, I can do this better. Absolutely. He's learning from what he would do differently as opposed to what he was seeing done. Correct. And he also goes back at that point, you know, remembering some of the early George M. Cohen shows that he had seen celebrating America and this American entertainment, whereas Ziegfeld was putting on these European fashion shows, which is all they were. And so George White wanted to do a fast-moving, fast-paced, raucous musical comedy show with dance. And so decides to do that. But 1919, he had made enough money, $50,000 that he had to start the show, but then gambled it away on dice, shooting craps one night, lost all his $50,000 totally. So then he has to go to Arnold Rothstein, the creator of the New York mob in 1919 and borrows $50,000 from Rothstein. To start his first edition of the George White scandals. Of 1919, right. And he has now also stolen Ann Pennington, who he has fallen in love with and worked with in Ziegfeld, and they were a team, and he's her star with himself in the show. And he has Aunt Jemima and 
Lou Holtz and some other people in the show, you know, that he's gathered together. So he's rehearsing, and this is really incredible and intense. Things were not going real well, and the music was terrible. He has Arthur Jackson doing the music and lyrics, and it's just terrible. Now he's already sort of run out of money, and he doesn't have half of a show together. So he's literally just about to excuse the cast and say, you know, we're just not going to be able to do this. When in walks Ned Wayburn himself with a telegram for George White from Ziegfeld, which explains that if he would give up this whole ridiculous scandals idea and come back to work for him, he would pay him so many thousands of dollars per week. So Ziegfeld wants to shut this down, even though he doesn't know what it is at this point. Exactly. But, but it was a threat. Yeah. And there were lots of figures that were tossed around about what these figures were. And I know because of White's notes what the correct figures were. And he was offering George White $3,000 a week, which was a lot of money yeah. in 1919, to drop this whole ridiculous scandals project and come back to work with him with the Follies. So George White makes Ned Wayburn stand there and turns the telegram over and scribbles a message on the back of it to go back to Ziegfeld, saying that if he and Billy Burke, so now he has actually pulled his newly married wife, Ziegfeld's, into this thing, would give up this whole Follies idea and come to work for him, then he would pay him $2,000 a week. Less, less than Ziegfeld was offering. Unbelievable. And Ned Wayburn is one of the leading choreographers on Broadway. The choreographer of the Ziegfeld Flights this is not a messenger boy. This is no, no, somebody this who's is... in charge of Broadway to a great extent. Right, right. And had a very exclusive, very large school of dance right. in New York. Trained all the dancers for Broadway. And in Europe and in London as well. I mean, he was huge. And he was George White's boss at one point. So he's got the mob breathing down his neck. He's got no show. But I think Arnold Rothstein thought he was kind of funny and cute and all. And so Rothstein keeps continuing to give him money to get the show on its feet. They probably never even would have opened or done anything except that year Broadway went on strike <laughs> and White refused to become a member of the league. And so his was the only show open on Broadway. So this is the equity strike of 1919 when equity is formed. Correct. And he's one of the people not wanting to acknowledge the union. Yeah. Well, George White never acknowledged any of those <laughs> unions or the tax company of America as well. I mean, he just made money and just spent it as wildly as he was making it. Now, of course, the show got terrible reviews and said the music was awful, and so he had to do something. And he immediately went to Paul Whiteman, who had, you know, come into town. And so George White went there to get Whiteman to write the music for the scandals. And Whiteman says, I'm not a composer. I can't do this. But there's this other guy. Maybe we can try to approach him, George Gershwin. And so Paul Whiteman finds Gershwin, and then they offer him the contract to write all the music for the scandals of 1920. The second edition of the Scandals. Yes, the second edition. But he also already has Arthur Jackson still there to write the lyrics. And so it's a small jump forward, but not much. 
And so New York critics were, were not kind at all. So what makes the show succeed as well as it does, even though the music's not good and some elements of the show aren't up to snuff at this point? Well, they had the mob behind them, you know, to get publicity and get people in the theater. Rothstein would say, well, don't worry about people getting in the theater and filling the seats. That's my job. And is George White performing in these shows as oh, well? Yeah. So he's the star of the show as well. So he is the star. He is directing, choreographing, writing the skits, all of it. Wow. He's designing, you know, helping design everything. And yeah, he's the one man act. So that's why I say, I mean, you think Barnum was something and... and Even Cohan. You know, they're, they're babies compared to this guy and who he's taking on and what he's doing and accomplishing. So now not only does he have Gershwin, he hires Erte then by 1920 to design the sets, costumes, and draperies for the scandals. And he has to literally get on a boat and go over to Paris every year to meet with Erte and bring all the designs back to New York, where then Charles Lemaire and other people would put the designs together and manufacture what Erte wanted. So Erte stays in Paris this whole time. Would he come over to supervise the final? No. Erte never saw a single scandal show. Wow. He hated America. He wouldn't come. He had been early in the teens and did some things with the Metropolitan Opera or something here and there, and just hated America. I mean, are you kidding? This gay Russian imperial French artiste, I mean, he rarely left Paris. And so George White would have to wear kid gloves, talking to him and say, yes, yes, we can do this. And Erte demanded that he use, you know, only the finest linens and silk and everything for these costumes. And how did George White even know about Erte? How did that relationship start? George White had been in Paris himself. When he left the Follies, he went to Europe and performed in Paris, London, and Monte Carlo and, and made several tours through Europe. And he saw Erte's work in the Follies Bergère. And he knew that this guy was extraordinary and that he could be the one to take him up and over Ziegfeld and whatever Ziegfeld was designing and putting together. So now he has Gershwin and Erte in the right. second edition of The Follies, which obviously is a giant step up. Exactly. And he's making money. And this is 1921. By 22, he has now had it with Arthur Jackson. So they hired Buddy De Silva to come in and write the lyrics with Gershwin. And they had worked together earlier in this La La Lucille show. Mm -hmm. So George White put two and two together and brought De Silva in. The first song they work on together, of course, is I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. I'll build a stairway to paradise With a new step every day I'm gonna get it at any price Stand aside, I'm on my way I've got the blues And up above it's so fair Shoes go on and And now Whiteman himself has offered and is going to have the 23-piece big band of his orchestra playing in the pit of the show, including the Boswell sisters and the Rhythm Boys, Bing Crosby and the Rhythm Boys. Are all part of this 22 edition of, of Scandals, right. I've got the blues, and up above it's so fair, shoes 
And so they have not only I'll build a stairway to paradise, but now Gershwin and De Silva and Whiteman all team up together. And it was all Whiteman's idea. And they decide they're going to put this black jazz blues opera together that they're going to perform in this raucous comedy review, this tragic blues drama. And they spring it on George White. And he's like, you guys are out of your friggin' mind. <laughs> we are not putting in this operatic, you know, tragedy in the middle of my show. And so the three of them threatened to walk and they forced George White to put this in. He decides to put it in. There's not a single black in the show. But because of his understanding and love of black theater, which was becoming large at the time as well, with the Harlem Renaissance and stuff. Shuffle along. Yeah, well, and he's already involved in Running Wild as well. Right. You know, so he ends up deciding to do it. So they put it in the show. This is Blue Monday Blues. It was and is the only performance ever done of Blue Monday Blues. And Paul Whiteman, as they show in the movie of Gershwin, you know, Rhapsody in Blue, Paul Whiteman is crying in the pit. Most of his musicians are crying. The whole audience is crying. And it's this unbelievable piece, which 16 years later becomes Porgy and Bess. Right, or it inspires Porgy and Bess. It becomes Porgy and Bess. Don't let anybody kid you otherwise. Because there's a historian, forget his name offhand, from New York, who has written books about comparing music. And he compares Blue Monday Blues to Porgy and Bess. And he said, no, we have the same music. We have the exact same music. The same story, you know, basically, except this one was up in Harlem. And so bullshit, you know, that, that he went down south to try to discover these rhythms and these music. He already had it in 1922. So anyway, White pulls the number out of the show. It only lasts one performance. It's never been performed since. And he pulls it out because it didn't fit into the show, no matter how effective right. it was. 20 minutes long. Yeah. And they knew it was brilliant, but it wasn't right for the show. Now we have this relationship with Paul Whiteman and Gershwin that Paul Whiteman gets Gershwin to write this concert piece for his jazz orchestra. And they're going to do this experiment in modern music in 1924, Rhapsody in Blue. Now, where would Gershwin be? If it wasn't for these two guys, George Gershwin would have still been a song plugger doing rehearsals and plugging songs if George White had not given him this opportunity. And then Paul Whiteman advancing all of this incredible genius that the guy had. It's really quite a story. And Gary and I will continue that story on the next episode of Broadway Nation. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.